Yes, this Wednesday is our, we're kicking off a teen Bible study. It's going to be at my home this Wednesday night from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. That's for those of you who are in 8th grade through 12th grade. If you're driving or parents, if you're driving your kids, if, if you would drive slow down our dirt road, we would appreciate that. Um, teenagers that are coming, bring a Bible and bring a pen. That's all you need to bring. If you'd like to bring a notebook, you could bring a notebook as well. Uh, logistically, if that seven to eight hour is difficult for some of you parents who are dropping off, reach out to me this week if you're able to get your teenager there at seven, but it's tough to get them at eight. I know it's only an hour. Uh, reach out to me. You could probably give them a ride home if that's something you're comfortable with. So this Wednesday, 7 p.m. at our home. The address is in the bulletin. Looking forward to seeing you teenagers there. Seems like every few months there's a high-profile pastor in the American church that falls in some way, sins publicly, is involved in some sort of a scandal, just falls hard. And everybody in the American church at least knows about it. I can remember this happening to a, a particular pastor several years ago, and when it happened, I felt good about it. I can remember thinking that I was justified in my criticisms of that particular pastor. I can also remember feeling good about my faithfulness as a pastor. I can remember reading this tragic news about a, another pastor that fell from grace and it made me feel good about myself. Have you ever looked down on others? Have you ever thought lowly of other people? Do you ever feel superior to someone else? Do you ever feel better than someone else? Do, do you build yourself up or do you build others up? Are you generally speaking, looking to compliment others or critique others? And what about your heart? What about what, what no one sees and no one hears? Do you thank God for other people? Do you rejoice when others mess up because it makes you look better? Do you become critical of others in areas where you excel? Do you secretly rejoice ever in other people's pain because you feel like they deserve it? Do you pray for all kinds of people? Do you pray for all the people in your church? Do you serve all kinds of people in your church? Have you been, maybe even in your own church, have you been unforgiving? Well, if you answered yes to any one of those questions, you might find this text and, God willing, this sermon helpful. We're in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, and at the beginning of this chapter, Paul changed subjects, returning to the topic of division in a local church, in this local church at Corinth. It was a big problem, and you see him address it over and over again. And one of the ways that the 
disunity in that church was showing up was as they would assemble for worship, like on a Sunday morning, that it was given to them from God and it was for others. So it was not from themselves and it was not for themselves. And that's true for everything we have. I mean, at the end of the day, everything you have is from God. And everything that God has given you, it is not for you. It's not for yourself. Paul was reminding them. Everything that God has given you, every gift He's given you, every blessing He's given you, every gift He's given you is for God and for Corinthians and their church. He would drive home that same point through this text to our church today. And that is that all members of a church are valuable. All members of a church are equally important. Do we actually believe that? Or do we actually feel that way? Do we actually operate and act like that's true? We'll have to think about that. But first, will you please bow your heads with me? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, through the preaching of your word, we now draw near to you with assurance that you will draw near to us. Teach us and help us to live the Christian life for you and for one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And if you're using one of our church Bibles, you will find today's text on page 902. I would encourage you to look at the words here, to lay the Bible on your lap. I'll go through these first three verses Quickly. I don't mean that we'll get through them quickly, but I think I'm going to talk kind of fast. Because there's a lot to get through here in just these three verses, and it is foundational for the verses after that, which are the implications, the practical implications of what Paul says here in these first three verses. But there's a lot. Remember, all members of a church are valuable and equally Important. That is Paul's main point here. And he makes that point in these verses by using an illustration. And the illustration is the human body. The illustration he uses is the human body. That is a good illustration. That's something that every one of us is very familiar with. The human body is Paul's allegory for the church. So we've got to think about those two things together. So look at verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. The word body, if you scan over these verses these 15 verses we're studying, the word body shows up 17 times. The word is soma. It can refer to the human body. It can also refer to the family of God. That is the way Paul uses it in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. He writes, And he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints... For the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. So he uses the word body there. He means the church. He means the family of God. So let's break this verse down. Because what Paul says here in, in verse 12 is the foundation for everything else he says in this chapter. And if you look with me, he says three things. Number one, the human body is one body. You see that? The human body is one body. 
For just as the body is one, and as many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body. Another way of putting this, there is unity in the human body. That's the first thing he says about the human body. Number two, the human body has many members. Do you also see that when you read the verse? For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members, though many, are one body. Another way of putting this, there is diversity in the human body. So that's number one and two. The human body is one. There is unity in the human body. And the human body is made up of many members. There is diversity in the human body. The third thing Paul says is the body of Christ is like the human body. That's what he means with these last five words of the verse. Let's read it again. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So the human body is an allegory for the body of Christ. The unity and diversity of the human body is like the unity and diversity of the body of Christ. A church like us is one body, but many members. There is unity and diversity in the human body. There is unity and diversity in the church. We are a diverse people. Look around. We are a diverse people, but we are also unified. And Paul repeats this in verse 14. For the, and we could put the word one there. He means one body. For the body does not consist of one member, but of Many. Now we skip to verse. In the middle of these verses, verse 13, Paul explains how that happened. I mean, how did that happen? How did we, Christians who are here this morning, how did we become the diverse and unified body of Christ? How did we end up in this family together. We did not start out that way. You're not born into the family of God. So how did we, we're already diverse, how did we become unified? Verse 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So we've always been diverse from the moment we were born. We've been diverse. We've always been different. We have different backgrounds, don't we? All of us. We have different histories. We have different stories. Some of us come from different cultures even, different ethnicities, different first languages. We have different jobs. We have different personalities, different preferences, different gifts and different abilities. I mean, we've always been a diverse people. So what happened? What made us one? Well, verse 13 happened. In one spirit, we have all been baptized into one body. And we have all been made to drink of one spirit. So two things happened to unite us to each other. One, we were made to drink of one spirit. And two, we were baptized into one body. Well, made to drink of one spirit, I think simply means that all of us has Christians, we have all received the same Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit that's been poured out on me as a Christian has been poured out on you as a Christian. But secondly, and more specifically, what does Paul write? In the Holy Spirit, we have all been baptized into one body. This is not water baptism. This is something different. This is not immersion into water, but the Holy Spirit. This is not physical. This is spiritual. This is, if you like, baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, some Christians speak of baptism of the Holy Spirit as something that happens to some Christians at some point. They would describe it as a spiritual event that takes place sometime after you become a Christian. I just don't think that's biblical. Look at this verse. It teaches us that all believers receive this baptism of the Holy Spirit. So let me read you a few verses to try and explain what that is. This baptism of the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit baptism, it is first mentioned by John the cousin of Jesus, some of you will remember, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. John said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and he's talking about Jesus, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So I'm doing this water baptism, but Jesus will come and He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Then, Jesus comes to His disciples, you'll remember, after His resurrection, and He tells His disciples in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then you could read in Acts, and just a few days later at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descended and empowered the disciples. And then Peter preached a sermon telling all who were listening that they could receive that same gift. Acts 2.38 Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then as we read the book of Acts, we see other believers receiving the Holy Spirit in the same way. For example, in Acts chapter 11, Peter describes what happened to Cornelius when he became a Christian. Acts 11.15 As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. The same baptism we received back in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, the same thing was happening to these Gentiles. The same thing happened to Cornelius. And Peter says, when that happened, I remembered the word of the Lord. He said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Disciples were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Cornelius was baptized with the Holy Spirit. These other converts and believers in the book of Acts baptized with the Holy Spirit. So this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, if you like. It's what Paul is describing in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It happened to the apostles at Pentecost, and as we keep reading, it happens to Christians when they become Christians. Well, what is it? What is it exactly? What does it mean? In the Holy Spirit, be baptized into one body. When someone becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit indwells them. 
the Holy Spirit takes up residency in a Christian. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in you? Now it is one thing to have the Holy Spirit with you. It is another thing entirely to have the Holy Spirit in you. This is a really big deal. It's one thing to have the Holy Spirit with you. It's another thing to have the Holy Spirit in you. And Christian, the Holy Spirit is in you. This is what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 14 before baptism of the Holy Spirit. He said to His disciples in verse 17, even the Spirit of truth, talking about the Holy Spirit, whom the world the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, you know Him, He's talking to His disciples, for He dwells with you and He will be in you. See the difference? He's with you now, disciples, but I'm going to die. I'm going to be resurrected. I'm going to ascend to heaven. And then I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And He won't just be with you like He is now. He will be in you. You will be the temple of God and His Spirit will dwell in you. And the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. So when the Holy Spirit dwells in you, that means that the presence of Christ is with you always. It's why Jesus said in John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans to His disciples. I will come to you. And at the end of Matthew chapter 28, He says, Behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. How is Jesus with His people? How is Jesus with Christians, by His Spirit indwelling in them. Let me summarize that and I'll, I'll read this to make sure I say this right. Following the ascension of Christ, the Holy Spirit was sent as promised at Pentecost by the Father and the Son to begin His un unprecedented new covenant ministry. So what the Holy Spirit is doing now after Jesus is totally different than what He was doing before. Unprecedented. Indwelling believers, all believers. And what's He doing there? Mediating as one who was with Him from the beginning, the very presence of Christ. So Christian, you have been immersed by the Holy Spirit. He regenerated you. Made you born again. He united you to Christ and other believers. He illuminates the Gospel and truth. He convicts you of sin. He cries out to God on your behalf. He brings greater joy and greater security and greater unity between you and other believers. So here's the point. Why are you telling us this, Paul? What do these foundational verses teach us? We were just many members, but by the Holy Spirit, we have become one body. Well, so what? What's the big deal? So we've been, we were many diverse people, still are diverse, but we have been made one body. What difference does that make? How will understanding that reality protect us against division? How would it help Corinth? How will it help Roseville? So Paul moves on to the implications. And that's what we have in verses 15 through 26. So here's what's ahead in these verses. You have two common thoughts of Christians. Two related attitudes that if left unchecked actually promote division 
in a church. So let's get into these two common thoughts, these two related attitudes. The first deals with how we think about ourselves, and the second, how we think about others. So let's start with how we often think about ourselves. It's the first wrong attitude, and it's described in verses 15 through 17, and he's carrying on his illustration, the human body. If the foot should say, it's starting kind of weird, isn't it? If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Paul is he's pushing this illustration, and it's a strange thing to imagine, but a foot is thinking lowly of itself. And that's the idea. I mean, it's pretty low. It's down there. And his foot's looking up at all the other parts of this body. And it feels inferior to the point that it doesn't even feel like it's really a part of the body. And the ear has the same problem. It looks up, ear, feel me? Yes. The ear, verse 16, and if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. So the feelings or assumptions of inferiority do not make it so. It's a silly thing to imagine, and it's silly when Christians think this way. This is parts of the human body thinking lowly about themselves. It, it's an attitude that looks around and says, I'm not needed. I'm not valuable. I'm not important. Well, that is as ridiculous in the human body as it is in the body of Christ. That's what Paul is saying. And it was happening in Corinth. Christians were looking at other Christians, looking up at other Christians, some of them who had spectacular gifts and abilities. We'll read about some of them in the chapters to come. And they looked at them and the, the ministries that they had and the positions they had and the recognition that they were getting. And then they looked at themselves and they were wondering if they actually mattered. I mean, people in a church can feel like this. Some of you have felt like this. Some of you feel like this right now. So in verse 17, Paul asks a couple rhetorical questions. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? Can you picture that? Instead of a, a human body as we know it, just an eyeball rolling around. Instead of a human body as we know it, just a nose nosing around. Paul's making a point. We would be incomplete. We need one another. We depend on one another we would, if we were just a big eyeball or a big ear, if that were the human body, then we would not be what God created. We would not be what God intended. Same with the body of Christ. Paul corrects the attitude. That's what he does in verses 18 through 20. This low view of yourselves, he says, but as it is, so this is reality, he's saying. That's not, this is God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So if you're an ear, it's because God made you an ear. Take it up with him. If you're a foot, it's because God made you a foot. God made you and God made this body. The church and a church. 
You are the way you are. I'm not talking about sin or the results of sin in your life, but I'm talking about your frame and your personality and, and the way God has designed you that is different from the way God designed the others around you. You are who you are because God made you that way. And you are where you are because God has you where you are. God is, what is the word, arranging the members in the body. You are who God wants you to be. You need to get sanctified. You need to become more like Jesus. But he's made you the way he wanted to make you. He did not make a mistake. And he has put you where he wants you to be. Evidently, that's important for us to remember. God has made me. He's made me this way. And God has put me in this body. David Strain writes, comparisons are deadly in the Christian life. Our calling is simply to use what God has given us in humility for the glory of His name and the good of those around it. It is to use our unique gifts in our unique circumstances as only we can for the praise of His name. I thought about how to apply this to our church a lot of the things that were happening in Corinth, you'll see as we read on, I don't think they're happening here. I don't think they're happening in many churches, actually. But disunity is a problem anywhere and everywhere. Caring for one another the way we should. Loving one another the way we should. And here in these verses, thinking lowly about ourselves, that's a problem. Problem many Christians deal with, and we need to deal with it biblically. In a church in America that has so much opportunity, so much money, where we're able to do things on a scale as Christians that no Christians have been able to do them before in the history of the world. And not only that, but to be able to do it publicly. And for people to do these things, often great things, and to do them publicly. And then it comes to our doorstep. See it on Facebook, maybe. And what happens? Begin to feel inferior. Begin to be jealous, maybe. Begin to think lowly about myself. And it distracts me from living the Christian life. There is a lot of talk. Remember when I was growing up and when I was in college and after college, there was a lot of talk of amongst Christians about doing great things for God. Don't waste your life. It's a great thing to say. And then do something great for God. I'll say right off the bat, I'm not sure that's a biblical sentiment. But let's say that it is. Do great things for God. We should agree on what great means. We should agree on what it means to do great things for God. It is great to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. And it is great. It is a great thing for God for you to love your neighbors yourself. It doesn't get greater. You may not be a public speaker. You may not lead mission trips to other countries. You may not write books. You may not be a gifted evangelist. You may not leave an earthly legacy. 
I suspect most of us will not. But you can do great things for God. If by great, you mean loving God and loving others. Listen to what this author says. I think this drives home a point and gets to how we struggle with this as 21st century American Christians. She's comparing her present life of being a stay-at-home wife and mother with her past global missions experiences. And that felt great, and this doesn't feel so great to her. Listen to what she writes. Now I'm a 30-something with two kids living a more or less ordinary life. And what I am slowly realizing is that for me, being in the house all day with a baby and a two-year-old is a lot more scary and a lot harder than being in a war-torn African village. What I need courage for is the ordinary, the, the daily, everydayness of life. Caring for a, a homeless kid is a lot more thrilling to me than listening well to the people in my home. Giving away clothes and seeking out edgy Christian communities requires less of me than being kind to my husband on an average Wednesday morning or calling my mother back when I don't feel like it. Later she writes this. But I've come to the point where I'm not sure anymore just what God counts as radical. I suspect that for me, getting up and doing the dishes when I'm short on sleep and patience is far more costly and necessitates more of a revolution in my heart than some of the more outwardly risky ways I've lived in the past. And so this is what I need now. The courage to face an ordinary day. An afternoon with a colicky baby where I'm probably going to snap at my two-year-old and get annoyed with my noisy neighbor. Without despair, the bravery it takes to believe that a small life is still a meaningful life and the grace to know that even when I've done nothing that is powerful or bold or even interesting, that the Lord, He notices me and is fond of me and that is enough. So Paul's word to Christians who think lowly of themselves compared to others, all members of Christ's church are valuable. All members of Christ's church are equally important. The same blood shed for this one is the same blood shed for this one. Same price paid. Same Holy Spirit indwelling this one as is indwelling this one. Same Holy Spirit took you who were separated and made you one. Let's move on to how we often think about others. It's the second wrong attitude and it's described in verses 21 through 24a. This is a wrong attitude, not when thinking about yourself, but others. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. So, you see, this is parts of the human body thinking lowly, looking down on others. You see the difference? Before the attitude was, I'm not needed. This attitude is, you're not needed. You're not valuable. You're not important. And that also is as ridiculous in the human body as it is in the body of Christ. That's what Paul is saying. This also was happening in Corinth. Christians were looking down on other Christians. Verse 22. On the contrary. In other words, that's not right. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker, are indispensable. What's his point? Don't say, you're not needed. Don't say, I'm not needed. All are needed. All are indispensable. Verse 23. 
He's talking about the human body here, remember. It's going to be three different parts he describes. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. So, there's three different parts of the body mentioned here. I am not going to get detailed in regards to which human body parts these are and, and what their counterpart is in the body of Christ because I, I, I don't understand it completely yet. So I, I don't have the ability to do that. But I, I think we can get a fairly good understanding of at least what he's talking about in regards to the human body. And I think S.L. Johnson, he's probably correct when he identifies these various parts of the body. I was really helped by him. The less honorable parts. You got less honorable, you got unpresentable, and you got presentable. So you have less honorable parts of your body. You have a human body, and there are less honorable parts of your human body. And I think we all have different less honorable parts. I'm not going to tell you what yours are. That would be a terrible thing to do. I could tell you what some of mine are. You probably know what some of them are. Lately, I've been developing one between my chest and my waistline. It's a less honorable part of my body. My kids pointed out. I think my feet are really weird looking. If you saw my feet, they're just long and skinny. They look like these really long toes. They look like I could hang in a tree <laughs> by my feet. It's kind of weird. That's why I wear shoes. <laughs> It'd probably alarm you otherwise. My kids tell me my eyebrows are out of control. One of them actually will trim them for me. This is getting way too much information, isn't it? <laughs> Let's back that up. See, you have also your less honorable parts, right? I don't know what they are. You know what they are. Unpresentable parts. What are your unpresentable parts? Well, all the commentators I read, they agree that these are the parts of your body we don't need to get descriptive that you cover up. They're not parts of your body that, that you present. Ever since the garden, these parts of your body, they've been covered up. Parts of our body that we keep hidden. But you also have presentable parts that include your hands, right? That would include, of course, your, your face. Those parts of your body that people usually see. And they're the parts of your body that you usually work hard to present well. So the human body, it has all these parts. Again, I'm not, I'm not going to get detailed on what the counterpart is in the body of Christ. I'm not sure. But his point is clearly this, that the human body has all these parts. And so it is with Christ and the body of Christ. The church also has all these parts. And so listen to his response now in the second half of verse 24. But God has so composed the body. Who made it this way? God made it this way. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it that there may be no division in the body. So what's Paul been saying? Every part, every part is necessary. Every part of this body it is needed. All members of a church are valuable. All members of a church are equally important. Maybe you don't feel that way about yourself. But it doesn't matter how you feel. This is true. Maybe you feel this way about others and look down on others. It doesn't matter how you feel. This is what's true. We're all valuable. Equally important in the body of Christ. Now in conclusion, let's read Paul's final words. Why has God composed the body this way? What is the purpose of that? To, to unite. He's taken many members and He has united us into one body. So what's our response here? 
Those of you that think low of others, those of you that think low of yourself, what do, you, what do we all need to hear? But that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So again, Paul is pointing to the sovereignty of God. God has arranged the body. Here the word is God has composed the body. He has made you. He has made this body. He has made this Veritas church. If you're a member of this church, we didn't, we didn't find you and say, you're just what we're looking for. You meet the requirements. You, not so much. You, just what we're looking for. No, what was, the, what was the requirement for you to be a member of this church? There's only one requirement. Do you remember what it was? You had to be a Christian. That's it. You need, so you're part of the body of Christ. You are eligible to be a part of this body of Christ. So we haven't arranged this. God arranges His people. And He has a purpose and a reason in doing that. He's reminding us here that all these members are valuable. All these members are needed, are important. All the members of this church are valuable. All the members of this church are equally important. And if you're tempted to think lowly of yourself in comparison to others, you need to be reminded of that. And if you're tempted to think lowly of others compared to yourself, you need to be reminded of this. And what do you need to do when reminded of that? Care for one another. Is what Paul says. You see, that's the opposite of division. Division was a problem there. So he says, care for one another. Have the same care for one another. Don't care for this person more than you care for that person. Don't love this person more than you love that person. But care for them. If one suffers, you suffer. If one rejoices, you rejoice. Pastor Jeff had mentioned it. And we've had an example of this recently in our church. A good example. As a pastor, I feel proud. That good pride. Proud of you as my brothers and sisters and the members of this church. How you love and care for, most recently, the Brooks family. And how many of you were not able to or didn't go see Sarah, but were praying for her and praying for her family and praying with your family for her and updating them and asking about her. And then the many of you who went, were able and went to see her, talked to her, held her hand, read her from the Bible, prayed with her, sang songs to her and with her. And many of you with tears in your eyes, what was going on there? She was suffering. So you were suffering. And then when she died a physical death, you rejoiced. Not because she's not here, but because she's there. You rejoiced. Because she'd be rejoicing. And so you rejoice with her. I'd say this for many reasons. Sarah was not a well-connected member of this church. For lots of different reasons. She was not a well-connected member of this church. Many of you did not know her well. Many of you did not even know her. And yet, you were praying for her. You were taking time out of your day for her. You loved her. You cared for her. That's the opposite of division. Now, it's not to say that this is not a struggle for us or not a temptation for us or that we have somehow arrived. But that is an example 
of what it is that we're to do in caring for one another. So let us do more of that. Get to know the people in your church. Pray for the people in your church. Get on CCB if you're a church member. Go to the members group and then click on the participants tab and see the list of who is a member in this church. You'll probably be shocked to find you don't know who many of them are. It's okay. You can start praying for them. Then when you get to meet them, you can say, I've been praying for you. But you can see who all the members of this church are. There's others who are not members, who are still a part of this church family. Maybe we'll become members soon or someday. We love one another. We pray for one another. We get to know one another. And we serve one another. Because all members of Christ's church are valuable. All members of Christ's church are equally important. The Holy Spirit has united us into one body that we may have the same care for one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. And we pray that you would use it to change us and to change our hearts toward you and towards other people. Encourage us, God, to love you greatly and to love others greatly. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that has united us to one another and enables us to love you and one another in this way. In Jesus' name, amen. Every sermon we respond by taking communion together. It's what everything is really leading to in our worship service, to commune with God and with one another in this time. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we remember and we proclaim the Lord's death today. You are invited to take communion with us if you are a baptized believer and if you are a part of a local church, whether it's this one or another, that preaches the same gospel that you are hearing here today, we'll have leaders up front to serve you. If you'd come forward, take the bread and juice, and hold on to it as you return to your seat and wait, and we'll take it together as a family. Let's pray once more. Our Father in heaven, now we turn our attention to remembering and proclaiming the death of your Son. We remember his death and we proclaim his death because it is his death that has brought us to you. So God, we thank you for reconciling us to yourself, for bringing peace where there is enmity before. We love you and give you praise, glory, and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.